In John chapter 4, this woman is a Samaritan. Now, the Samaritans were a minority group in Israel. They were despised. They were powerless. They were pushed down. They were marginalized. The Jews considered the Samaritans heretics for a couple of reasons. First of all, the Samaritans did not worship at the temple on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. They worshiped at Mount Gerizim. They worshiped at, so remember when the woman says, you guys worship on this mountain, we worship on this other mountain? Secondly, they were considered heretics because they didn't recognize all of the Old Testament as the word of God. They only recognized the first five books of the Old Testament. So as a result, the Jews hated the Samaritans. They despised them. And here's this woman. She's from this minority group. And it's never easy to be in the minority. It's never easy to be in a culture where you are a part of a group of people that is stereotyped and hated. And in her life, this works its way out. I mean, we, we see this often in minority groups where a sense of hopelessness can begin to descend upon a whole group of people. And the way this hopelessness fleshes itself out in this woman's life is through an unending series of broken relationships with men. She's lived with five men. And she now lives with a sixth man who she's no longer even going through the trouble of getting married. He's just forgetting that whole thing. So not only is this woman, this is why I love the picture on the front, not only is she part of a despised minority group, but she is rejected by our own group of rejected people. And so that's what leads to a woman with the look on her face of our painting. Her self-image is shattered. She carries around this deep sense of guilt and worthlessness. She's lost all trust in her own goodness. She's shattered. She has no self-image. She's convinced that no one could really love She's imprisoned in this chaos of sadness and anger and loneliness. And we don't know for sure, but probably even hatred. See, that's why John says in the sixth verse that she comes to worship and it was about the sixth hour. Because you don't go to draw water in the middle of the day. You need it at the beginning of the day. And you don't go to do this type of labor when it's really hot. Why is this woman going in the middle of the day, the hottest part of the day, to draw water? Because it's the only time she can escape the scathing comments and the looks and the condemnation. She comes to draw water at this moment when she can be alone. So she won't have to hear and feel the shame and the rejection and the mockery of all the other pure ladies in town. And Jesus is tired and he's sitting by this well and the disciples have gone into the nearby village to buy food and he's thirsty. So Jesus begs this woman for water. This empty, helpless, broken woman. And in the midst of the discussion, look in verse 13. John chapter 4, verse 13. Jesus said to her, 
Everyone who drinks of this water, talking about that well that they're sitting by, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now, can you hear what Jesus is saying to this woman? He's telling her, if we drink of the fountain of God's love and compassion, we will become a fountain of love and compassion. If we receive the Spirit of God, we will give the Spirit of God. He's telling this woman, you can be changed into someone who no longer grabs what you need or gets what you deserve, but you will give what other people neither can deserve or earn. This will turn into you a fountain of living water. Not a dead sea that flows nowhere, but I will flow into you and then out of you. What Jesus is saying something really important about the love of God here. He's saying the love of God has movement. And, and, and when you and I receive the love of God, we don't become the end point of it. We stand midstream. The love of God has outward movement. He's telling this woman, you can be completely changed in the way you relate to people. My love can flow into your life and it will not stop with you. It will have outbound movement through you. Jesus is saying, look, not only will I give you love that will change you, it will pass through you to do something that is so far off your radar, you can't even conceive of it. Through you, I will change others. Now, to this woman, he's saying, I can do this kind of work in your life. Not to the town superhero, not to the lily white women at dawn at the watering well, but to the broken woman at noon. We are not the final destination of God's love. Jesus is saying, my love will do far more than heal you. Through you, it will heal others. We are midstream. God's love, like all of God's gifts, are meant not to work in our lives only, but to work in us so that they change us. And through us, he can change others. Look, look at verse 28. So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? She runs off to the village so excited, she leaves a very valuable object behind. She leaves her pitcher of water why? Because now there is living water flowing in her heart and she doesn't need that picture anymore. And look what it says in verse 28. She finds the people. Who are the people? They are the men who ravaged her body. And they are the women who destroyed her reputation. This is the town that has rejected her. To those people, she runs. To those people, she leaves this jar behind and she goes to these people. Why? Because you see, the living water is beginning to flow. It's beginning to flow into her heart and through her heart into others. She's received life-giving water. Now, through this passage, Jesus is showing us 
that he will not only transform us, but through us, he will transform our relationships. And in this passage of scripture, there are two primary relationships at play. There's a relationship between Jesus and this woman, and then the relationship between this woman and the town. And so let's, for the next few minutes, take each of these relationships and see how God is saying something to us about what he will do in our lives if we open our hearts to him. First of all, the relationship between Jesus and this woman. Look at verse 7, John chapter 4, verse 7. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Now jump down to verse 27. When the disciples came back, they marveled that he was talking to this woman. Now, it's obvious from Jesus' accent and the way he dresses that he is a Jew from Galilee. It is as obvious to this woman as it is to us that Alice is from Kenya. It was as obvious to her who he was and that they were different. Secondly, Jesus was a Jewish man. And Jewish men don't talk to single women. That was a cart, that was a rule that everyone knew in that society. Thirdly, Jesus was a rabbi, and rabbis do not have conversations with moral lepers. This woman was astonished on all three counts, and rightly so, and so were the disciples. But Jesus cutting against this strong cultural norm, he offers this woman who is so profoundly different from him on all three levels, he offers her friendship. Friendship. Remember Romans chapter 12 that Aaron read to us? Listen to verse 15 again. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty. Did I just say haughty? Haughty but associate with the lowly. Never be conceited. One of the things that really blesses me is how this church and this community has been shaped by God in this way. One of the things that God's love does is it transforms us so that we can become the kind of people who offer friendship to people who are different than us. Anybody can be a friend with someone who's just like them. But Jesus is offering friendship to a woman who is so profoundly different than him. And he's modeling for her. And he's saying to us, that's what his love does. You know, Harrisonburg was not always this kind of melting pot that it is now. It was settled by the Pennsylvania Dutch and the Scotch-Irish. And over the last two decades, there's been an enormous influx of refugees and immigrants. The the Harrisonburg school system has gone from an ESL program of 4%. 4% of the students in the Harrisonburg school system 15 years ago, only 4% had to take English as a second language. Now, 41%. Now, because of the way God has worked in this community... It's working. I'm not saying it's not without its challenges, 
But that's the work of God in a community that allows it to experience such tectonic shifts of its ethnic proportions without being destroyed by riots. That's the work of God in this community. And it's not just on an ethnic level. I mean, right now, right in this room, we have Mayans from Guatemala, right? We have Maasai from Kenya, Bolivia, the Gambia. We have people from all, I'm from Louisiana. I mean, all over. This is the work of God in our church. It's the same spirit of God that empowered Jesus to shatter his culture, cultural norms by reaching out in friendship to this woman that has made this room what it is right now. And it's not just the ethnic diversity of our church. Janelle and I are in a small group on, on Tuesday nights. Now, in this small group on Tuesday nights, there is Janelle and I, middle-aged. Well, Janelle's middle-aged. Couple, we have five young children, the Goods, who are grandparents. Amelie and Jeremy, uh, a couple, um, boyfriend, girlfriend in college. Jen Westfall, a single mom. I mean, nowhere in our, in our culture would this type of people decide to just go on vacation together. Because our, the gravitational pull of our culture is friendship is based on affinity and chemistry. But the gravitational pull of the spirit is entirely different than that. This is a way God is working in our church. And, and this is just a taste of the new heavens and the new earth. How God works in us and gives us this ability. His love flows through us and reaches out to people who are different than us. Now, what I'm trying to point out here is that one of the ways God transforms us is by enabling us to have friendship, real, genuine friendship with those who are different. And there's a profound difference between friendship and friendliness. And you know what the big difference is between friendship and friendliness? Eating meals together. See, friendly is what occurs in public spaces and safe spaces. Friendship is what occurs in your home. Anybody can be friendly to the guy who's different than them on the street because there's no vulnerability and there's no danger. But friendship is the kind of thing that Jesus did that caused his disciples to raise an eye. Friendship is when we reach out. The world says birds of a feather flock together. But the Spirit of God does something entirely different. So that's the first picture of God's love in this passage. We see it flowing through Jesus into a friendship that he offers in a very gutsy and courageous way to this woman who's very different from him. Now, the second concrete way that we see Jesus transforming our lives in this picture involves a re- in this story involves a relationship between this woman and her town. Look at verse 28. This woman leaving her pitcher and running back into town. Now, don't allow the brevity of the passage to trick you into thinking that that was a simple moment in time. Who was this woman and who was she running to? She was running to a group of people who had ravaged her. They had used her body. And then they abused her reputation. The very people who scorn and despise her. This is a real woman really running toward a group of people she had really sinned against. 
who had really sinned against her. And this had built up over time. And what about Romans 12, verse 17? Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourself. But leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. That's what the woman is doing. He's running to a town that is far thirstier than her. And she is offering them something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil. Do you see her? She's overcoming the evil of this town that they've committed against each other. She's overcoming it by this incredible act. Now, look, God is insistent here. Christians do not let relationships die without a fight. That's what's going on here. She's fighting for reconciliation. That living water that Jesus offers us, when we open our hearts to it, when we open our hearts and we let that water flow into our hearts and into our lives, it will change us into the kind of people who pursue reconciliation even when it hurts beyond anything you can imagine. Do you know the kind of courage it took for that woman to go back into that town? When you and I say, I will not forgive, I will not reconcile, we are actively and forcefully damning the water of God's love from flowing into our hearts and through us to others. The refusal to forgive The refusal to fight for reconciliation is a dam upon the living water of Jesus Christ. So it stops transforming us and through us stops transforming others. But the truth is, we live in an unforgiving culture. We live in a culture that is bankrupt of grace. And if we're going to live in harmony with one another, if we're going to live peaceably with everyone, if we're going to help our enemies, we've got to clear away an awful lot of confusion about what it means to forgive because most of us were not raised being taught the art or the skill of forgiveness. And we have no idea how to wade through very tricky waters when it comes to being harmed and extending forgiveness. So let's pause here. And I want to walk through some basics of what the Bible teaches us about forgiveness. Because in that woman's race back to town, that's what's playing out. Number one, forgiveness involves two actions. The first one, to forgive someone is to pronounce, to claim that that person has sinned against you. To forgive someone is to claim that someone has sinned against you. When I say to Alec, I forgive you, if Alec doesn't think he's done anything wrong, he knows I've just claimed he did something wrong to me, right? See, to forgive someone is to claim someone has sinned against you. You're accusing a person of deserving forgiveness, of wrongdoing. 
It is not forgiveness to shrug off what somebody's done and to act like it did not occur. That is not forgiveness. That's cowardliness. It is not forgiveness to sweep something under a rug. There's no way to give the gift of forgiveness without the sting of condemnation. Forgiveness just doesn't work that way. Not real forgiveness. When you really forgive someone, you are simultaneously accusing them of having done something that needs to be forgiven. That's the first action involved in forgiveness. The second action involved in genuine forgiveness is the generous release of a real debt. So forgiveness has two actions. First, it's to pronounce someone has done something wrong. And second, it's to come back behind that and to actually release them from a real debt. See, justice requires an equivalent punishment. Justice requires that. But forgiveness gives up the right to an equivalent punishment. It releases them from the debt. See, forgiveness is a gift. It's a form of giving. I give you a release. I write away the debt. I tear up the contract. To forgive someone is to give that person the gift of existing as if they had not committed the offense at all. When I forgive you, I absorb the injury. Leo Tolstoy, he put it this way. By forgiving a person, he said... I swallow the evil and I prevent it from going further. Look at it this way. Revenge multiplies evil. Justice contains evil, but forgiveness overcomes evil. Forgiveness involves those two actions. Pronouncing guilt and then releasing the person from the debt to you. Now, that's forgiveness, accusation and release. That's biblical forgiveness. There are other versions of it, but that's what the Bible says. I've summarized a lot of scripture there. Now, when you think about forgiveness in this biblical kind of way, I want you to notice a few lessons that it has for us in our culture that is a culture without grace and without forgiveness. First of all, forgiveness is not dependent on emotions. You don't feel forgiveness. It's not an emotional action. A while back, Janelle and I watched um, one of Janelle's favorite set of shows, movies, is these movies by Tyler Perry about Medea. So we were watching about a year ago, Medea goes to jail. And there's a scene where Medea's in prison and a preacher tells her that to forgive is to release yourself from bitterness. Now think about that for a minute. Medea says, the preacher tells Medea, who's in prison and has been harmed by lots of people, he's telling Medea, look, you need to forgive these people so that it releases you from bitterness. Forgiveness is a gift to yourself. Preacher's words are very similar to something I heard on TV, so it must be true, right, from a very famous uh, psychologist that gets lots of airplay in America, a famous relationship expert speaking to a famous talk show host. And this relationship expert says, forgiveness is a choice you make to release yourself from anger and hatred and resentment. 
Now, the problem here is that it's so close. There are benefits to forgiving others. But God teaches us through Scripture that we forgive primarily for the sake of the other person. I'm releasing their debt. That's what I'm doing. I'm not manipulating your offense into some tool for my psychological development. When I forgive you, I am doing something. I am giving you a gift. There are residual effects. It does impact me. It does help me. But that's not my motivating force here. My motivating force is to release you from something. Forgiveness is this gift. And one of the primary ways that the transformational kind of flow of God's love works in our lives and becomes visible to this world that we live in is through forgiveness. To forgive when my wife forgives me. She is foregoing a rightful claim she has against me. And she gives me that gift. Number two, the second lesson we learn from genuine biblical forgiveness is that forgiveness is not dependent on repentance. Forgiveness, for me to forgive Janelle, my wife, for Janelle to forgive me, it does not depend, if Janelle forgives me, it doesn't depend on me getting my act together and repenting. Now, it's definitely far more difficult to forgive someone when they refuse to repent. It's very, very difficult. And in fact, one of the things I've learned through some very painful experiences is that when a person who has offended you, sinned against you, when they refuse to repent, it's a form of continuing the harm. It just keeps happening on some level, over and over. But forgiveness is never earned. Justice is earned. Forgiveness never is. Aren't you glad forgiveness can't be, isn't earned? I mean, where would that put you with God? Forgiveness is never earned. It's not, forgiveness is not a reaction. It is an action. It's not, it's not built upon anything that you've done except your sin. It's the beginning of something new. Now, remember the reason that we forgive. The reason this woman is running back into town is that this is what it means to be a follower of Christ. God gave her love. That love flows through her heart to others. This is the heart of Christianity. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be that right, right in the center of that prayer. Forgive us our debts as we forgive. You see the flow, it flows through us to others. Why? Because this is what it means to be restored to our full human splendor. This is what we were made to be. We were created to mirror God. Anything less is really Judas's kiss on our own cheek by ourselves. We are betraying ourselves. A third lesson about true forgiveness. It's not a state of mind. It's not something that just plays out in your head. Forgiveness is a social exchange. It is entirely insufficient if forgiveness only happens in your mind, in your heart. 
Remember, it's a gift, not to yourself, but to someone else. And unless you give it to the offender, it is not a gift. A gift ungiven is just a box sitting on your shelf. Now let's turn the coin over. Because as much confusion as there is in our culture about giving forgiveness, there's an equal amount of confusion about how do you receive forgiveness. And again, here's this woman at the well. And some of you, like me, you know that the most difficult action she did in that moment was not running back into town to forgive, but it was receiving God's forgiveness of her. That's what's on the front of our our worship guide. A woman who can't even look up. The greatest battle played out in that moment. That's why she runs back into town. I mean, can you imagine her creator who knew every dirty deed she had ever done is looking at her. Does she look up? Does she receive his forgiveness? How do you do that? Well, receiving forgiveness, like offering forgiveness, involves two actions. Number one, you must receive the accusation. Woman, go get your husband. I don't have a husband. I know. Jesus is bringing it all out, all the laundry. He's bringing it all out. He's got to own up to it. To receive forgiveness, we must confess our wrongdoing and repent. And when I confess, I recognize myself as someone who needs forgiveness. And I have to repent. That's such hard work. It's so difficult to repent. It might be one of the absolute hardest things you'll ever have to do in life. But to receive forgiveness, you have to confess. You have to repent. In other words, it's a gift given but a gift unopened. To receive the gift, to open the gift, you have to confess, you have to repent. That's the first action. We receive the accusation through confession and repentance. The second action involved in receiving forgiveness is that we must receive the release from debt. That's so hard. How do you do it? Well, let me just say, it is simple. It's not easy, but it is simple. How do you receive the release from a genuine debt? You believe and you rejoice with gratitude for such a generous gift. You believe it's been given to you and you receive it with joy and gratitude. Sometimes we refuse to be forgiven because we're so ashamed of our sin. So our guilt just eats away at us like some deadly cancer. But you know what's really going on in the moments where you refuse to receive forgiveness? You know what's really going on there? You are choosing the pain of self-inflicted punishment. You're choosing that over the pain of receiving a handout like a beggar. In other words... Refusing forgiveness, refusing to be forgiven, is really a matter of your pride. It's proud people who can give you the shirt off their back, but never take anything 
as a gift in return. That's pride. It's saying I would rather the pain of suffering self-inflicted punishment and guilt and shame for what I've done than suffering the pain of humiliation of being a beggar. It's choosing one pain over the other. But you know the irony is? Self-inflicted punishment, like any punishment. Punishment cannot release you from guilt. Only forgiveness can. That's the irony. Your pride is causing you to choose a route that will never lead to release. Remember what I said? Justice, you cannot earn forgiveness. You can only humbly receive forgiveness. Like I said, this is hard work. And the road from this sermon (laughs) to actually forgiving and receiving forgiveness is a long, painful road filled with all kinds of obstacles. And some of you in this room, you may need to rage in anger for a while against someone or something or God himself. But please, get on the road. Work this stuff out. And if you do, one day, if you just embrace the river of God's love and you begin to turn your heart toward Him, even in small increments, just turn toward Him. In your pain and your suffering and your offenses, turn toward Him. And if you do, His love will chip away at the granite of your heart. And it will transform you. Like it transformed this woman. So Jesus transforms our relationships by giving us this living, flowing water of love and it, it changes us. I mean, I, I look at this woman at the well, this thirsty, empty, broken woman. And do you see Christ knocking at the door of her heart? She opens her heart to Christ and it changes her. One final piece of encouragement. Offering friendship to people who are different from us and offering forgiveness to our enemies. I want you to think of both of these actions as gifts. The gift of friendship to the stranger and the gift of forgiveness to the enemy. Think of these as gifts. And when we give these gifts, the Spirit of God will take them And no matter how long they are covered by the dark earth in the cold of winter, spring will come. And new life will sprout up out of these gifts. It may appear sometimes that you give in vain. You offer friendship in vain. You offer forgiveness in vain. And you just keep getting treated in painful ways. But you keep doing it. And the Spirit of God, like He resurrected Christ and made His death produce an abundant fruit, the Spirit of God will take your gifts of friendship and forgiveness. And either in this life or in the life to come, He will raise a harvest more abundant than your wildest dreams. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and your way and your work in our lives.